Well, welcome to The Professor and the Hack. This is episode 24. I am the hack, Hugh Rimmington, and The Professor is PVO. Hello, Peter. G'day, Hugh. Good to be with you. Good to be back with you, and my apologies for uh, being a little absent. I, I went off on some holidays and then got myself... Uh, I was about to say, you call them holidays. <laughs> weren't you uh, right in the thick of it reporting for us here at 10 about what was going on on the border of Turkey and Syria and all the rest of I it? I did go there, yes, and that's <laughs> a, uh, an interesting and... Um, Only you would consider that a holiday. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's always interesting to see uh, history shifting. There have been so mm. many shifts across Syria, uh, but the, um, the bailout of US troops at the behest of um, Donald Trump, essentially the abandonment of uh, his Kurdish allies there in northern Syria. What do you make of that? I mean, this is something that you've covered over a significant period of time. It's pretty unusual, isn't it? Looking at it as an outsider from my perspective, the way that he's conducted this. So what I think has happened there is that there is a signal, whatever else are the consequences of it, one consequence is is that... uh, is that the United States, and particularly under Donald Trump, has mm. signalled that it is an unreliable ally. It can't be trusted. Its word is good for nothing. Um, and that's a really important shift. It's not surprising in the context of what Donald Trump has said for years about um, wanting to get out of wars and uh, his reluctance to use American military might although he has increased deployments in Saudi Arabia, most notably, uh, but also um, the way in which the US troops have been redeployed within Syria is all about oil. So mm. fundamentally, uh, if there's oil and there's money in it for the United States, then the troops will be sent there. But if it's any other issue uh, that might relate to um, alliances, uh, to creating a better world other than simply a financial return, uh, he's not interested. Well, he's that's a, a signal. Well, here's a question for you. I mean, this is, I guess, the million-dollar question is, is this a snapshot in time, whether it's for a little over a year or for five years if he gets re-elected, or is this perhaps the start of a new way that America functions because of the longer-term impact that Trumpism might have on American foreign policy? Well, I think the key is a really good question. I think the key part is who will win the election next year. Mm. Uh, If Trump wins the election next year, there's no reason to suppose he won't continue doing uh, what he's been doing. In fact, it'll probably empower him to have that endorsement. But even if someone else wins, and we've got no real clarity on who it might be uh, on the Democratic side, uh, will they go back to a sort of a Hillary Clinton-type view of the world or will it be something else? Um, That's really interesting. And I think when Trump was elected, there was a view, I think, in establishment circles that this was a big surprise, that Trump will do things, particularly once he started to govern essentially as he had campaigned, so he didn't shift into a more conventional form of presidency once he'd got his his hands on the wheel. Uh, so people might have thought in those early stages, this is an aberration. Trump is an aberration. Mm. He won't last. And when he's gone, it'll return to business as usual. But I think under Trump, and not entirely because of Trump, but certainly with him being a factor in this, uh, Trump has created a world in which the trends towards globalisation uh, have been reversed and and there is a greater rise in nationalism. It's happening not just in the United States, but in Europe and elsewhere. 
in... Uh, well, even some of the rhetoric from our own Prime Minister, I think, has started to, to reflect elements of that. I wouldn't want to overstate it, but, but certainly elements of it. Yeah, so th- that sort of multilateralism in which most of the elites, and particularly the Western liberal elites, had a, had a particular stake, uh, and w- was seen almost as being a bipartisan position, those things have been undermined significantly. And that may be a process that lasts beyond Trump, even if Trump gets knocked out. We have to say against that that uh, we've seen uh, Scott Morrison. He's at the East Asia Summit and there's uh, talk of this uh, regional uh, economic cooperative cooperation deal, essentially a freer trade deal across Asia. Uh, the full significance of that is not all that clear at the moment, but at least it's a step towards some arguments in favour of freeing up trade across our own Asian neighbourhood. So that multilateralism isn't completely dead, but uh, it is under more stress and will doubtless continue to be under stress for some time. And then, you know, you see a guy like um, Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, He has acted entirely through Turkey's nationalist narrow interests. He has no... Uh, he has no view outside uh, his own Turkish perspective as to what he's doing there in northern Syria. And he's just another example of of someone acting in a national interest rather than a multilateral interest. And, um, and it'll probably work for him within Turkey. So again and again, you're seeing all around the place this, you know, this thing going on. And it, just a small way, look at Sri Lanka is about to go to the polls. They will probably achieve a situation there if, if, it, if it goes as expected with um, a relative of the former President Rajapaksa winning and there are analysts who will say that there's a country which we rely on, we, we, we play cricket with them, we've seen them become a democracy and sta- stabilise as a democracy even after a civil war but there is an assumption there that, that democratic norms within that country are, are diminishing and it's just another little tiny piece of the puzzle um, dropping away. So history isn't over. Liberal democracy hasn't won. At the moment, I think it's a little bit in retreat and and, and mm. what's happened in Syria is a, is a tiny touch of all of that. But let's talk about domestic stuff, Peter, because there's a lot to talk about. There is actually, isn't there? There's, I mean, it's been a little while since we've had this chat together with all the various goings on, but I tell you what, whether it's policy or politics, there's, there's a lot in the mix. Well, let's start with the Labour Party because its review, as, as we sit talking, is due, mm. uh, the post-election review at six months now. Uh, we're told it's a monster. There's talk of it being up to 30,000 uh, words. Um, that's, that's because you've got someone like Dr Craig Emerson involved. You know, he's a former academic. He can't help himself. But I, I, can, I can make it briefer than 30,000 words, to, give, it, give it the let, let, me, let me cut the suspense for you. Uh, they lost the unlosable election and they shouldn't have. End of story. Yeah, I, I could do this one in a sentence for them. Well, then, then the next question, <laughs> which might require more than a few sentences, is why exactly did they lose it and what lessons must they learn? Can't we do that in two words and just say Bill Shorten? Wouldn't that be easier for them because it avoids the recriminations, it personalises it to one individual rather than hinting at systemic problems? Don't tell me they're going to issue a report that actually looks at the wider problem and doesn't just scapegoat the leader at the time. Interesting to see. Uh, <laughs> because if they do just go with Bill Shorten, it's all his fault, um, then they miss a necessary opportunity to try to figure out who the hell they are. And there are other people weighing in and people oh. within the Labor Party trying to figure out what it is that the Labor Party should and must be. Are there ever? I mean, I wrote about this in, in the Weekend Australian, actually. Uh, the number of, uh, if you like, Labor personnel, not just senior personnel, but a wide range of them, trailing their coat, as you will. Now, you expect a little bit of this, after, particularly after this type of defeat. Uh, and it's not a bad thing either to have some of it. And, and at one level, 
credit to Anthony Albanese for allowing a lot of policy freelancing about where Labor should go to next, because that is healthy. I think it's unhealthy when a newly minted opposition doesn't spend a bit of time thoughtfully going through these sort of issues, because then it just becomes on message. And it might be electorally beneficial where they get back into power because they stay on message quickly. But then what did they stand for or why did they lose in the first place? Often that can be papered over. So we've had Jim Chalmers do a Light on the Hill speech, I think this week, uh, on Thursday, I think it is, we've got uh, the first, the inaugural Paul Keating lecture being given by Chris Bowen. On the front page of the Oz, you had Kim Carr saying, no, let's uh, stay to the left, we don't need to change. Wayne Swan echoing a version of that as party president, saying, yes, we need to stick to the policies that we took to the election. He got slapped down by Mark Butler. Uh, there's a whole series of them. Claire O'Neill, I think, talked about political correctness being a problem. Joel Fitzgibbon says we don't pay enough attention to the miners. Uh, of course, the Minerals Council sponsored that tour of Labor MPs visiting mining communities that they're supposed to be out of touch with. So there's a lot going on as everybody talks about where to from here and what we should or shouldn't stand for in terms of what the Labor Party should or shouldn't stand for. But I guess this report will be something that's a bit more ironclad than that, won't it? And it'll put it in the context of a defeat where it might actually talk about that mixture between the policy and the electoral. It's interesting because the AWU, of course, has been an engine room for the right in the Labour Party for so long and so many leaders have owed their uh, factional votes to the AWU. And it's National Secretary, a bloke unknown, I'd say, to 99% of the Australian electorate, Daniel Walton, mm. has given his judgment. And and one of the things he said is that uh, one th Labour's only had one majority in 26 years, outright majority in 26 years, but he says voters in the bottom... That's a hell of a stat, isn't it, Hugh? Sorry awful, to interrupt. Yeah, that awful is for the Labour Party stat. when you consider that what they were in the, in the 80s and, and early 90s, that's for sure. Uh, but he also says that voters in the bottom 40% of income were the ones who swung most heavily against Labour. He says these are our people but they don't feel at home with our party. That is telling mm. that it's in that low, that 40%. I guess you'd pitch into that, that lower 40% of income would include lots of people who were retirees, uh, who were freaked by the so-called retirees tax on the franking credits. So maybe they were a little bit duped on that. But there is something deeper. And Jason Clare is obviously a Labour frontbencher and, and has one of those outer suburban seats in Sydney. He says, if you look at a little, dig it a little deeper, I'm quoting him here uh, from Sky TV, if you dig a little bit deeper into the vote and have a look at those communities, those are ones which swung against, swung against Labour, you'll see that in almost all of them, unemployment is higher than the national average. And they are places where wages aren't just flat, but in many cases in real terms are going backwards. Now, in places like that, where people are really struggling, You'd expect them to want to kick the government out, and I suspect many of them did want to kick them out, but they didn't. They decided to opt with the current government rather than choosing us. That is, it's pretty stark, isn't it, when you think, from, you put those together and that's the real challenge for Labor. Oh, is it what? I mean, and it's an interesting one because there's a version of the same challenge uh, for the Liberal Party that they're facing. I mean, I think this comes down to once upon a time... The Labor Party could take working class voters for granted and once upon a time the Liberals could take what you might consider upper middle class and upper class voters for granted. And then it was the great middle class of Australia that tended to decide the elections. But these days, Labor's conundrum is exactly as you point out, uh, where those uh, working class voters in particular sit, in, particularly in the new economy, uh, where there's a bit of a disconnect between some working class uh, voters and and others who might be considered lower socioeconomic 
voters, but not necessarily in the same banner of working class, more self-employed today. So Labor can't take all of that hub for granted, and the issues that matter to them are quite varied. But the Liberal Party, and this isn't their problem right now, but it is a risk for them when they balance conservatism and liberalism, their issue is that a lot of upper-middle-class and upper-class voters are quite progressive on the sorts of issues that Labor likes to be progressive on and the, and the Conservatives within the Liberal Party don't. But at the moment, Labor isn't really capturing those voters to the same extent that the Liberals seem to be capturing the working-class voters. And that, I think, is the real interesting philosophical discussion around where the parties sit and where they ebb and flow. At the end of the Howard years the Liberals lost those progressive so-called doctor's wives, as they were known at the time. Uh, Now, at the moment, Labor is not retaining those because of some of their policy scripts, perhaps, but is continuing to lose the the working-class voter, some of whom came to be known as the Howard Battlers and might now be known as Morrison's marginal seat cohort. Jobs is obviously the uh, word we keep hearing out of the mouth of Anthony Albanese, even on such subjects as uh, carbon emissions. It's now all about uh, the jobs that are possible in a greener economy. Would you expect that running hard into the next election as they look at that uh, lower 40% of the income belt of those where unemployment is higher, as Jason Clare points out, mm. uh, it is going to be from Labor jobs, jobs, jobs? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that they can't give up their sort of, if you like, Uh, environmental credentials in a binary sense. We are better at this or we do more for it or we care more than the coalition. But it doesn't need to then start beating itself on that score to try to somehow match the Greens, you know, in a two-party system with compulsory preferential voting, as long as it's doing a better job. I mean, this is incredibly cynical electoral politics, Hugh, I realise. But in that sense, uh, as long as they're doing a better job than the coalition, they're going to get those votes one way or the other. Where they need to be more careful, though, is around jobs, uh, where they're perceived as being the party that might put jobs at risk, even though it's meant to be the party of a heart uh, that is more concerned about the safety net, for example. So expect to hear a lot more from Anthony Albanese about this, I would I would certainly argue. Uh, and then we'll see where it lands for him, because he will have pressure from his left flank uh, as he does this. He's already starting to have pressure from his left flank. And of course, he hails from the left of the party. He's an inner city progressive. Uh, the Greens have a very high primary vote in his own electorate, uh, as well as neighbouring electorates such as Tanya Plibersek. So interesting debate here, but Labor has no choice but to go after this electorally because it can be as pure as it likes about some of the other issues. If it can't capture those votes in those very seats that we're talking about where jobs and the mantra of jobs is so important, uh, well, then it might as well give up, really. Well, Bill Kelty, who knows all about jobs, probably the greatest Labour Party figure of the last 50 years not to have actually entered Parliament, uh, gave a speech uh, at a new think tank, the Crescent Think Tank in Sydney, uh, a week or so ago. And he said that uh, he cannot remember any political party going to an election with a policy that involved tax rises, uh, including he was talking about the franking credit uh, policies of the Labor Party, without having tax cuts at the centre. He says if anyone's ever done it, he can't remember it. And he says no one has ever done it and won. So his assessment of what went wrong more than anything was that Labor was all about higher taxes and didn't give people an argument that they there might be a tax cut benefit that was going to go their way and he thought that was fatal. So that was the great well, Bill Kelty. And that's not an unfair point because, you know, in that sense we're starting to talk about, you know, taxes as a percentage of GDP, aren't we? So if they're not, they're not going to find other cuts to go with their tax increases 
then yeah, they're, they're basically advocating an increase in tax as a percentage of GDP. And the interesting thing is, there's plenty of examples where that has actually happened around the world, but most of them are isolated to the European continent. Uh, whether that flies culturally in Australia is another matter. And Scott Morrison was the right person in the right place at the right time from a Liberal Party perspective to unpick that because Malcolm Turnbull had long tried um, but didn't seem to have the cut through that Scott Morrison did. And I mean, I can recall it, even though you know I certainly didn't predict the election outcome. I, I, I thought Morrison would get closer as the election was getting closer, but as it turns out, he did even better than that, didn't he? He got all the way over the line, not only won, but increased their majority. And, and the mantra was to hit Labor really hard over being the higher taxing party. Well, uh, we've got lots to talk about. There's the aged care report, which is a, a dismal uh, prospect. There's the Prime Minister and Peter Dutton having a crack at, at protesters. And we've got major blue chip companies who just can't seem to pay their employees what they're lawfully entitled to. Let's talk about that in just a moment. We'll take a quick break. G'day, I'm Matt Burke, and this week's special guest on Talking Rugby is a veteran of the game. He's devoted the last 50 years of his life to the sport he loves with just pure passion. He's been a player and also a referee, and what about this? He's been at every World Cup since its beginning in 1987. We know him as the voice of rugby. This week, we talk with none other than Gordon Bray. Talking Rugby with Matt Burke. Make sure you check it out. Welcome back. Uh, thanks for staying with us. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack with uh, me, Hugh Rimmington, and Peter Van Onselen. Uh, Peter, let's touch on this aged care interim report. It goes to the budget, but it goes much more deeply to something fundamental in, in the appalling conditions in which hundreds mm. of thousands of aged Australians find themselves in a really, really grim report. Oh, absolutely. And, and one that anyone that has had much to do with the aged care sector uh, knows maybe not the extent of what's been released in that interim report, but certainly knows and knew that there were problems afoot that needed to be addressed. And at least this report brings it all out into the open. We'll see the full recommendations when the final report comes out next year. But the reason this is so important is not just because it should be, because how we treat senior citizens in this country, I would argue, is at the absolute vanguard of what kind of society we want to be. People that have had a lifetime of contribution to the country in most cases, uh, who then have some reliance on it in their retirement and in their declining years, if I could put it that way. But we're all going to be there, you know, or at least if we're not, we wish we were because we all hope to live long enough uh, to, to, to require at least some dependence on the age system later in life. And we're an ageing population, you know. There's no avoiding the fact that more and more of us uh, are going to fall into that cohort and live longer uh, into those years where we may need that kind of assistance. So getting it right now as a fiscal challenge as well as a social responsibility uh, is absolutely paramount. Uh, and that's why it was a good thing that Scott Morrison called this Royal Commission as one of his first acts when he became Prime Minister Well, prompted by the, They knew that Four Corners on the ABC was about to drop a complete bucket on it. And so just ahead of that coming to air, that's when they called the Royal Commission. Oh, but, you're too cynical, Hugh. You're no, too not, cynical. not remotely cynical. I mean, time <laughs> and again, governments have called Royal Commissions the morning after a Four Corners report. In this case, they could see what was coming and they called mm. the Royal Commission ahead of it. Well, the key now is what actually happens at the other side of it. I mean, that's where I was going to go with this, is that we've... <laughs> Good on him for calling it uh, and good on him for his initial response that more money will go into it. But that really at this point could be the Liberals' own version of what they often attack Labor for doing, which is throwing money at a problem but not necessarily structurally solving it. What we really need 
is to be able to judge this government and judge all sides of politics in the years to come on whether this gets solved and fixed. I mean, there's more than two years till the next election. That is more than ample time to see an implementation and early stages return, hopefully, on the investment of the implementation of enacting recommendations. But it has to involve money because the first thing they want to do deal with is remove the waiting list, people waiting two years to get a high-level in-home care package, people dying on that waiting list. And the just fixing that, according to well, me... various assessments, is $1.7 to $2.5 billion a year. And that's before you start getting into the issue of staff shortages in, in mm. aged care homes, etc., where there are, there are people being chemically restrained and all the rest of this kind of stuff because there's not the staff there... Uh, to to deal with them, this cannot be dealt with without a fair bit of money getting chucked at it and that being made a priority. Um, surely there's no avoiding that, that whatever else is going on, it's going to cost us money if we're going to give our aged some chance at dignity in their final period. Oh, well, l- let me give you a, a personal example. I mean, this now was a good 15 or so, a little over 15 years ago, but when my, my, after my father had passed away, my mother, I was an only child, my mother um, had dementia, uh, which was ironic at one level because she had actually been the matron of, a, of an aged care facility um, during her working years as a nurse. But she got dementia uh, and I, we, I mean, we had the means to be able to have her cared for at home. So we were able to draw on um, some government assistance, but a lot of privately organised ourselves. But uh, for my wife and I, she would go into respite care uh, occasionally so that we could actually just have, you know, a break because we did live with her. Uh, She had her own sort of, you know, studio accommodation at our house. And that respite care, she hated it, you know, and and, and it was a top quality facility. Uh, But, you know, I didn't particularly like it either when going and visiting it. And this was with no allegation nor suggestion of of anything that was untoward. And this was, you know, 15 plus years ago before the level of, uh, if you like, impact on the system of an ageing population has hit what it has today and will only get worse at. But, you know, even in our context of things being all okay, it was difficult. And even, Hugh, getting the assistance at home that we needed um, for her decline in health, because she didn't just have dementia, she also had all sorts of physical ailments, she actually needed to have an emergency hospital admission at one point when we were looking after her before we were able, despite being two educated carers, before we were able to then get the level of support that we were looking for and had tried to look for for some time before that. The reason being that that emergency assistance that required her to go into hospital, they could only release her once there was an adequate package of care that was presented to the professionals. But before that, when she was in no better state in a general sense, we were struggling through the system to understand it, to know what was available to us, to know what was there with subsidy, what wasn't. It, it's, it's a murky system, and that was back then. Uh, so I can only imagine what it's like when you've got even more dependence on it or when you don't have uh, the caring options that we had or the financial options that we had. So this is, you know, this is a dire system, uh, despite all the goodwill in the world. Your mum was lucky to have you around, Peter. Um, <laughs> I mean, in her declining years, she may not have said that to me, uh, but, but look, yeah, you, look, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, we, we were fortunate though, um, but it was bloody hard, you know, despite having all of those, uh, all of those benefits on the way through of, of, of being able to sort of do it right, 
it, it was really, really difficult to do. And, and I wasn't working full time at the time. I was still, I was a PhD student. So you know, I, I had the proverbial time between study and, and, and extra time as an extra set of hands at home with her. And it was still really difficult. I don't know how people manage uh, when they're already under financial stress and they're working uh, as family members of, much less with kids, which of course we didn't have at the time either. I can tell you a story of my own. It's a, it's a great story. Thank you, Peter. My brother, uh, in his late fifties, decided that after a career in sort of lower management, um, he wanted to do something where he felt he was giving something back, and he retrained as an aged care worker. Is that I, right? I wow. spoke to him at the weekend, and um, and he works for quite a good facility in in Brisbane, but he works a nine day fortnight across all shifts, so. It's just less than full time mm. across all those shifts. And he was telling me that in his last financial year, and he didn't do this for the money, he, he knew he was going to drop money, his income before tax was $39,000. There you go. And mm. he is, as he says, um, up to my elbows in bodily fluid every day. Yeah. Uh, it is a job people do for love. But when you think that one of the things that uh, that that is required is more people willing to do this work. When you consider how poorly paid it is, they're chiefly women who do this work. They're very highly skewed towards um, migrants from non-English speaking backgrounds. It is not, you cannot raise your own family on that kind of money. Uh, They are the working poor who are looking after your old folks, even if there's anyone around to do it. And that also surely has to change. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a worse version of a similar issue with childcare workers, isn't it? You know, uh, the pay that they receive, the conditions, we've seen expose in, exposés in the childcare sector as well. But it is worse and more acute, absolutely, in the aged care sector um, because what they're dealing with is even harder uh, than it is at the other end of the age spectrum. The, these are two sectors which need significant public funding, uh, naturally, um, and are highly expensive. And as far as the aged care one goes, as we keep saying, with an ageing population, uh, it's only going to become more acute. And it's something that we all really need to be fixed because if we don't access it ourselves, well, (laughs) we know a lot of people who do. For sure. I I want to change gears. Just a couple of minutes left to us, really. Um, We've seen Woolworths a blue chip company caught out with a $300 million underpayment of its staff and the bullying, the clear bullying intention when staff raised these issues with them. Extraordinary, wasn't it? Extraordinary for such a big company. And then you've got Westpac, which has just announced a lower profit figure as it blames having to actually comply with the law uh, (laughs) as being found out by the Royal Commission. Uh, and, you know... And that they can actually, be pesky Royal Commissions, can't they? they can the way pesky. that they actually require but, companies to do the right thing. But you look at that model, you're saying these are not the these are not the sort of the uh, people on bicycles delivering food or the Ubers, et cetera, these dodgy little mm. startups and disruptors who are who are not paying people. What These are the bluest of blue chip companies and built into their business model is not paying people what is the law. And the question I've got for you is why does this not enrage our Prime Minister that there are such breaches of the law, no one's above the law, as he keeps on saying, by these blue-chip companies, and yet at the same time, as we see, he wants to wind back the freedoms that Australians have have, uh, have enjoyed for decades, including pro-mining people who protested against the run mm. mining tax, to say that protests 
or things which might affect businesses uh, are going to be subjected to um, to tougher laws in future once he's properly drafted them up. What do we make of where he's going with all of this and what his priorities are? Well, you, you've answered your own question, Hugh. It sounds like he can't walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, he's he's got one priority, which is to clamp down on unruly protesters uh, and try to bring in some sort of non-union version of the secondary boycott provisions to disallow people from campaigning against companies uh, that might partake in other companies uh, whom, whose activities people don't like or protesters and, and activists might not like. Yet, uh, that becomes, if you like, protection for businesses, some of whom are seen to be conducting in un, engaging rather in un toward conduct to begin with. I mean, I, I think this is one of those classic ones where this happens a lot in society. The, these big, some of these big organisations are becoming, they, they were always or often for a long time, the banks, for example, were too big to fail uh, in a sort of economic sense, but they're becoming too big to fight in the eyes of some these days. You know, the ability of big companies to throw their weight around uh, whether it's a journalist that take them on and try to expose what's going on or whether it's the political class who rely on some sort of mixture of donations or whatever it might be, there's a real, and I'm talking generally here, th- there is a growing ability, it seems, for big organisations uh, to be able to thumb their nose one way or the other at community expectations. And yes, we have pushback on that. We have a Royal Commission uh, or we have exposés that do occur like with Woolworths and its underpaying of staff. Um, but the big businesses, they seem to... The issue seems to be a cultural one for me. I mean, the Westpac example is a classic. I mean, the, the Woolworths one is a no-brainer. How on earth a company that big could underpay to that extent and make George Columbalis look like he'd almost done nothing wrong by comparison? That's how bad it is. But then the Westpac example, it's a cultural one. You see, with their release of their downgrade of profits, them blaming the remediation in the wake of the Royal Commission and the bad publicity of the Royal Commission, which is all entirely reasonable because of what was uncovered through that process, blaming that, yet also uh, people from these big banks that I've spoken to in recent times, whinging, if you like, uh, that the level of what's been exposed is perhaps not as bad uh, as, as what some of the media makes out. There isn't that cultural recognition of wrongdoing, quite frankly. Sometimes you get the words publicly that they need to clean up their act, but it's not really there underneath it from what I've seen. And you would think think that there would be an opportunity there for a Labor Party, if it was on its toes, to stick up for the little guy without bringing down legitimate business and that if they've got a path to the next election, it might be by being convincing in uh, supporting those people who are anxious about pay, anxious about wages, anxious about employment uh, and feel as if there's no one listening to them. Yeah, they've got to find the right way to do it, don't they? Because Bill Shorten bashed the banks so effectively that he co-opted the government into a Royal Commission when they didn't really want one. But you're right, Hugh, he didn't do it in that way, which then looks like anything other than just bank bashing. He didn't He didn't turn that into the protection of the little guy, which brings us back to where we started about working class voters, you know, needing to be drawn back to Labor from Labor's perspective. He, he found a way through without getting it right, almost. And we'll leave it there for the moment rather than keep bashing the ears of our dear listener. Uh, <laughs> but next time we have a chat, we'll know what the Labour Party wants to say about its own future. We might talk about that. And there's always something else going on. PVO, a pleasure as always. Great being with you. 
You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hey, when you've got a moment, check out some of our 10 Speaks podcasts. Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Hammered Home with me, Baz Dubois. I'm Matt Burke, and you've been listening to 10 Speaks Rugby Podcast. I am the hack, I'm Hugh Rimminson, and with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. You're looking splendidly relaxed, Peter. Have you missed me? Next time you're looking for a podcast, head to your favourite podcast player and search 10 Speaks. And give us a five-star rate and review while you're there.